Well, last week I told you guys that we started now in the church calendar in what's known as ordinary time. And ordinary time in the church, it doesn't mean that it's just plain Jane ordinary. What it means is, is that there's no holidays, no seasons. And the next, uh, next event in the church calendar, major event, is Christ the King Sunday, which is the Sunday just before the Advent season starts. And so what I wanted to do this morning was I wanted to talk with you, or actually begin a sermon series this, this morning, and it'll probably last at least through the summer. Uh, the title of it is Ordinary People Living Ordinary Lives While Serving an Extraordinary God. And what I want to do is look at characters in the Bible who are just ordinary folks, who have ordinary experiences, but because of the intersection of God with them, something extraordinary happens. And so I've asked Emily to help. I'm going to do something that you're never supposed to do when you're a speaker, is I'm going to give you something to distract you from me for the rest of the time that you're listening to me. Emily, if you'll pass out these booklets that I have. The Church of the Nazarene uh, has published what is now, what is called the Nazarene Essentials. This is a, 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 a statement that was published by the Holiness Today magazine but this is a statement of who we are as Nazarenes and what we believe. Um, they have made these available to churches around the world at no cost other than us paying for the shipping to get them here. So I ordered 100 copies. So feel free to take these home with you. There will be copies placed in the pew racks. I will be using this in future sermons. I'll also be using this uh, when I do uh, new members classes or anything like that. If anybody asks, well, who are you guys? This is a quick and easy ready reference for um, for what we are as a church of the Nazarene, what we believe, what we stand for, our history, our polity, etc. Now, um, you can continue to look at it and be distracted, but we do need to press on. And I'm going to turn you to a page in this in just a few minutes. Okay? Um, but for now, you can lay it to the side, and we'll go to the scriptures. So if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. This is right after the episode of the Tower of Babel. And in chapter 11, verse 27, and then we're going to read all the way through chapter 12, um, verse 9. So, yes. Well, this is the New International Version that I'm reading from. So chapter 11 of Genesis, verse 27, all the way through Genesis chapter 12, verse 9. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Um, Ur is located in what is modern-day Iraq. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, I am assuming, because I have nothing to go on other than what I'm reading, that Milcah was the niece of Nahor. Kind of grosses me out, but that's what this says here. 
It says now, verse 30, Sarai was barren, she had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. Listen to that. Terah took Abram, Lot, and Sarai. They left Ur and headed toward Canaan. But when they came to the town or the village of Haran, which I studied a little bit, and it was about a two and a half day walk from Ur to Haran. They got to Haran and they settled there. And then it says, Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. Now, before we go into this chapter 12, let me give you a little bit of background and understanding so that in case you get into some stuff, you'll, I mean, with conversation with people, you'll, you'll have a little bit of ammunition for your argument. Um, when Stephen, in the book of Acts, is being stoned, Stephen mentions Terah. And Stephen says in the book of Acts that Terah died at the age of 145. Here in Genesis, it says that he died at 205. <gasps> a mistake in the Bible! I can't deal with this! Okay, scholars understand and believe that Stephen was using what is known as the Septuagint, which was a Greek version of the Old Testament that was translated for that era, for Stephen's era, because that was the, the worldwide language was Greek. And there, in Genesis, it says that Terah died at 145. I don't know. All I know is that that's what it was. Scholars say that the best Genesis translation is 205, but what Stephen had access to in his day said 145, and that's why the discrepancy. Number one. Number two, um, Abraham, it is led to believe in the way that we read this just now in Genesis chapter 11, Abraham stayed with his father Terah in Ur, I mean, in Haran, until his father died, and then Abram, Abram left and went on to Canaan. That's what we get here. But you will read in other places that um, it's possible that maybe Abram left before his father Terah died, and then Terah lived an additional 60 years. It's all minutiae. But sometimes people try to play games with the scripture and say, well, there's an error. There's this. And so you'll understand different transcriptions, different translations, different interpreters, and culture also has different things. So there's a little bit of discrepancy in timeline. But the bottom line is, Terah and his family was living in Ur, which is in Iraq. Then they went up to a place known as Haran, which was also either in Iraq or just into Iran. I'm not quite sure where it was located. With the idea that they were heading to Canaan, which is where Israel is today. But for whatever reason, they stopped. And they settled there, and Tehran, I mean, and Terah never got any farther than Haran. Okay, so that's where we're at right now. So verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1 now says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. So Abram is living in Haran with his father, and his wife, and his nephew, 
and their servants and all of their property. And all of a sudden, God intersects with Abram's life. And he says, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go where I will show you. He then gives him a promise. The Lord says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. So not only is he going to bless Abram, but he's going to become a blessing to others. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Verse 3 is incredibly powerful because it says, Abram, you don't have to be afraid because I got your back. If anybody comes against you, I'll take care of them. Chapter 4, I mean, verse 4 then says, so Abram left as the Lord had told him. Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he began, excuse me, so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. And the Negev is the southern part of Israel. It's the desert area Um, south of Jerusalem, and just before you get into Egypt. Um, So there, that's that's basically the story at this point. We could go on and on and on, because there's chapters and chapters and chapters about Abram's life. And we know the whole story about the covenant and how God made Abraham and Sarah to have a child. But I want to focus just on this beginning. This is where Abraham first begins to understand that there is a God whose name is Yahweh, a God who calls him out, a God who is guiding him and directing him. Um, up to that point, Terah and Abram were living in Ur. We know that Ur was a, an idol-worshipping place. It was uh, back then, and even still somewhat today, there are people who believe that there are gods over the geographical area. Not necessarily a god over everything. And so in that world, in that time where Terah and Abram and Sarai and Lot were all living, they were living in a place that worshipped the local gods. But then somehow, someway, Terah, and we're never told that I could read, never told that God told Terah to go. At least let me look real back, back real quick just to make sure that I'm speaking truth. Because I've read this numerous times, but I want to make sure that I'm not saying a bad word here. Yeah, no, there's no, there's nothing that says that God specifically talked to Terah. It just simply says that Terah headed towards Cal- Canaan, but settled in Haran. That was verse 31 of chapter 11. Okay, so we don't know why Terah was motivated to leave Ur. All we know is that Terah, for whatever reason, said, hey, let's go, and they moved uh, towards Canaan, ended up in Haran. 
And again, life is settled down. And they're just sitting in this normal, ordinary life. Again, Haran, I was reading one, uh, one thing and it said it was near a crook or a bend in the Euphrates River. And it said that excavations that had been done, archaeological digs had been done in the area of Haran, where, Abraham, where Terah settled with his family, was about six to seven acres in its size. This church property is five acres. So the whole city of Haran, where Terah brought his family, was not much bigger than this church property. So it's not like this huge, thriving metropolis, but it is a center of trade, a center of caravans would stop there, etc. And there were a number, number, not a huge number, but a number of large buildings where commerce took place. So it became their home. Again, it was probably just like us. You know, you get up in the morning, you have your breakfast, you attend to your animals, you do whatever you have to do for the day, you have lunch, do a little bit more work in the afternoon, maybe sleep a little because it's hot and you're in the desert area. You get home and in the evening you gather around a family meal, you sit around the fire and you tell some stories and you go to bed. And that was the life that Abraham, Abram, excuse me, and his family lived. But then in chapter 12, verse 1, God reaches out to Abram. This is a key to our theology. And so if you will take your book that I just handed you and count back from the back cover, because none of these pages are numbered. I could kill these people for doing this. They didn't number the pages of this magazine. Okay, so count back. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. When you get to the seventh page, in the upper left-hand corner, you should see the Holy Spirit on the left page. Do you see that? Okay, now go to the, to the page to the right. And you'll see where it says atonement. And then go down one paragraph where it says prevenient grace. Okay, so from the back cover, count back seven. And then look on the right-hand side to the center section. And you'll see a brownish inked sun. And then it says prevenient grace. Okay? Very confusing. I'm sorry. There was no other way for me to... To get this to you otherwise. Because they didn't mark the pages. And I wasn't about to hand mark a a hundred pages. I mean a hundred magazines. Alright. But prevenient grace. And you'll notice that there's a Roman numeral 7. In front of the words prevenient grace. What in the world does this Roman numeral 7 mean? Well. In the Church of the Nazarene's theology. We have 16 articles of faith. So this is article of faith number 7. In our theology. And the title of this this section is Prevenient Grace. So let's go ahead and read it. We believe that the human race's creation in godlikeness included ability to choose between right and wrong. And that thus, human beings were made morally responsible. That through the fall of Adam, they became depraved so that they cannot now turn and prepare themselves by their own natural strength and works to faith and calling upon God. But we also believe that the grace of God through Jesus Christ is freely bestowed upon all people 
enabling all who will turn from sin to righteousness, believe on Jesus Christ for pardon and cleansing from sin, and follow good works pleasing and acceptable in his sight. We believe that all persons, though in the possession of of the experience of regeneration and entire sanctification, may fall from grace and apostatize, and unless they repent of their sins, they would be hopelessly and eternally lost. That's the statement from our theology of what we believe about God's prevenient grace. Now let's look at that first paragraph of this section, and I think it's the it's the third line down. Okay, it says though the fall through the fall of Abraham of Adam, they we human beings became depraved, and then the third line down says so that we cannot now turn and prepare ourselves by our own natural strength and works. To faith and calling upon God. What we understand and believe is that because of the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, because of the brokenness of the the God image in us, the imago dei within us, being damaged, warped, twisted, broken, we cannot in our own strength call out to God. It is not part of who we are to seek out God or to turn from our quote-unquote wicked ways and become any person of faith. The only way that that's possible, if you go down to verse the, the fourth line in this paragraph, we believe that the grace of God through Jesus Christ is freely bestowed on all people, enabling all who turn, all, excuse me, enabling all who will to turn from sin to righteousness. So what, what we say in our theology is that Human beings, in and of themselves, would never turn to God, would never reach out to God, would never call to God, unless God wooed them. Unless God called out to them. That's our statement of belief, and we see it played out here in the life of Abram. Abram is just living a normal, everyday life. 75 years on the earth, just living, doing everyday stuff. But God says to him, I want you to take responsibility for your family, and I want you to leave everything that's safe and comfortable and normal, and I want you to go on a trek to a place that you don't know anything about. But I'll tell you about it. I'll guide you. I'll show you. Are you in? Abram has a responsibility to then respond yes or no. In the same that our theology just said. Theology says, you can't of yourself turn to God unless God draws you, but once God begins to draw you, you have a choice. See, there are some Christians who say you don't have a choice. It's already a foreordained, and you have no choice. When God calls, you have to respond. But our theology says we believe that God gives us freedom of choice to respond yes or no. And again, we see this played out in, in Abram's life. Now, Abram, living a normal day life, all of a sudden, something happens where he becomes aware of this calling. We don't see anything in here that says God appeared before him in an epiphany, we don't, or a theophany, excuse me. We don't see anything about you know, some magical, fiery bush that's never consumed. We don't see some little lamb that goes, Hey, Abram, come on over here for a minute. None of this. All we know is that somehow, some way, Abram has this understanding that God is speaking to him. 
And it's not God of the geographical area or one of the gods. It is God. Somehow, some way, Abram is, is made aware that there is a God over the earth, over all of creation, over everything, who is pinpointing Abram and saying, I'm calling you, are you willing? And so he responds. What does he do? It says, well, first, before he goes, before he even goes on this trip, we see that God makes some specific promises to him. I'm going to make you a great nation. At this point, what do we know about his family? His wife was barren. There was no children. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You will be a blessing. And I will bless anyone who blesses you. And I'm going to curse anyone who curses you. And through you, all the people of the earth will be blessed. These are the very specific promises that God made. And Abram obviously believed it, and left. Now, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Let's see what Paul has to say about Abram on this other side of the, of the time. Continue, answer it up. It's about halfway between the time. Abram died... Died? Did he die? I think he, I think he died in, in, in 1925 BC is what I read. So literally, Abram, excuse me, Peter, and starting again, Paul, who wrote Romans, lived about halfway between the time of Abram and our time. And so this is halfway between Abram's time and our time. Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter four, and he says. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Well, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it, was it after he was circumcised or before? It wasn't after. It was before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of that righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So, then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. He's also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. 
As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. And we could go on and read more about this, but the point that I wanted to make was this. Abraham, Abram, excuse me at this point, was called out of his ordinary life by God, who he didn't know to this point. At least we have no evidence that God ever presented himself until this moment. And Abram believed, and God declared him righteous. And as a result, relationship was established. And then he said, if you'll follow me, all of these blessings will happen, but follow me. And Abram did, and he walked in a way of listening and a way of discerning. And finally, he gets to Canaan before God ever really appears to him. And he worships God. And then he even goes further into Canaan and he, it says he calls on the name. And that is an indication from, from, from scholars who have studied this that that's the first time that Abram began to worship God in the sense of He's owning God as his own. Okay? Before he's just responding to the, to the wooing of God, but at that moment, when it says he began to call on the name of the Lord, that was when Abram owned for himself this God who, was, who had revealed himself, who had proved himself, who was showing that he was good for his word. And so at that moment and from then on, Abram walked in relationship with God. He worshipped him. He honored him. So... What does this all have to do for us? And why did we even look at it this morning? The thing that really spoke to me as I was reading this this week. God desires relationship with every single human being. He wouldn't have created you if he didn't. And as we walk around fat, dumb, and happy in our ordinary life, God calls us. He woos us. But he never forces himself on us. Each one of us has the right to say no. Each one of us has the blessing if we say yes. And what we have a promise of, not necessarily the same promise that Abraham, that Abram got, but what we do have is a God who says, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I will be with you, I will strengthen you, I will uphold you. You don't need to be afraid. You can walk in this righteousness. And the other thing, and this is the thing that is so hard for humans to get, is we don't have to do anything to earn that relationship. See, in our minds, in our way of doing, in our way of relating, you do for me, I'll do for you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. But the way God relates with his creation is, I'll do for you. Just believe. Just trust. Just rest in me. That's it. So, as we start this look at ordinary people living ordinary lives but intersecting with an extraordinary God, what I want you to take away from is this. God is drawing you. Most of you are already in relationship with him. But it's not a one-time thing. If you will continue to hone the skill of listening for him, he will guide every step of the way. He will call you to greater and greater and deeper and richer and fuller experiences. And there's absolutely nothing that you need to do except believe as he's doing this drawing. 
And then be obedient to whatever he's calling you to do. It says in the book of Hebrews, faith is the only way to please God. That's the only thing that you can do to please him. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter how much you work. It doesn't matter how many accomplishments you make. It's do you believe when he asks, when he calls you, when he draws you. And like I said, I believe, and this, this is what we see in our theology, that God sent the Holy Spirit following the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus to be our guide, to be our paraclete, to guide us into all truth, to draw us into the path of, the, of righteousness that God wants for us. And you still have the choice to say yes or no. So the takeaway for me is this. God desires me. God has very specific promises for me. If I will respond and say yes, I will experience such incredible blessing and power and strength and I won't have to live in fear. And finally, it's an ongoing thing. It's not just an initial call and you're done. He walks with us. He talks with us. And he continually tells us that we are his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there with him, none other has ever known.